Thanks very much, Clifford, for leading us in prayer there. Well, it's uh, great uh, to be back into the book of Ecclesiastes this evening. Do uh, open it up again if you have it with you. And as we uh, enter into chapter 9 this evening, we are beginning uh, to enter the final conclusions of this book. Uh, And these conclusions are going to stretch out over the next three chapters as well. Uh, Remember, in Ecclesiastes here, the preacher of the majority of this book is on a quest to find answers, isn't he? He wants to know what meaning and purpose there is in life. He wants to fundamentally find out what it truly means to be a human here on earth. And as he's sought these answers, the preacher has consistently come face to face with our frustrating limitations here on earth. And as a result of those limitations, he has been pushing us time and time again to have an above-the-sun perspective, a perspective that has the one above the, above the sun in view, and that is God. Well, here tonight, we're once again going to be confronted with the ultimate limitation that frustrates the preacher and that faces all of us. And in confronting us with this ultimate limitation death. In these conclusions, the preacher is going to urgently call us not just to ignore this limitation, but instead to embrace it, to live wisely and rightly in light of it. So let's get into our passage this evening, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, which Isabel read for us earlier. And as I said, we're first of all going to turn to see three deathly realities that the preacher wants to lay before us in these verses. And in doing that, we'll start in verses 1 to 3. And here, the preacher wants us to know the reality that death is coming. It's coming to all of us, whoever we are, this evening. Read with me verse 1 as we get into this. He opens slightly differently, but he'll carry on into that. He writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Here, the preacher is picking up on the uncertainty of life that he was reflecting on just back in chapter 8, where we were last time, and how there are righteous people out there who don't seem to get what they deserve in life. Instead, they often receive difficulty and hardship, despite their righteousness. And here, in verse 1 at least, the preacher begins, I think, in a somewhat reassuring way. He's saying, I know things don't seem to add up as you think for the wise and righteous. See there in the second half of verse 1, they will face both hate and love going forward. But the preacher says he is sure of this, that those righteous, wise people, well, God has them in his hand. He is with them, he is carrying them, and he is helping them, whatever comes their way. But as we've just said, the truth is that that almost never makes them immune to the hardship that they might face here and now. And neither does it make them immune to where the preacher goes next. And this is his big point here in verse 2. 
See there, he writes that just as both the sinner and the righteous inevitably face love and hate in their lives, so there is one other certainty that awaits them. Verse 2, it is the same for all, since the same event, that is, death, happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears a holy oath, probably, is as he who shuns an oath. Just as there is sometimes no seeming distinction in life between the fortunes of the righteous and the unrighteous here on earth, so there is definitively, absolutely no distinction in where each and every single person, good or bad, will ultimately end up. As the preacher makes clear here, death is coming to all. The same event there is death, and it's inescapable. As the founding father in the United States, Benjamin Franklin, said, in this world there is nothing certain except death and taxes. And notice here how the preacher is saying exactly that. And he is making it clear to us that through this long list that we see here, that there is no one on either side there, good or bad, who can escape death. It is as certain as it comes. Death is coming to all. And as one commentator puts it, morality is no protection from mortality. Morality is no protection from mortality. It isn't like we can just obey the Ten Commandments as much as we can here on earth and we'll escape death. Or love our neighbor as ourselves as much as we can and we'll escape death. No. That is nonsense. Death is coming, and it's coming to all. Now, if hearing that, that there's no distinction between good and bad, because all will die, kind of makes you a bit mad here this evening. Maybe that gets under your skin a bit. Well, if that's you, you're in good company, because look at the preacher. He thinks exactly the same. See what he says in verse 3? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, death, happens to all. It really does seem evil, completely wrong, doesn't it? That good people suffer the tragedy of death just like bad people. Just think of it, the self-sacrificial wife who has spent years and years caring for her husband, who's been left incapacitated by a stroke or whatever it might be, well, she is going to die. Just the same way as a drug baron will, who has spent all of his life ruining other people's lives simply for his own gain and pleasure. Mother Teresa died just like Hitler died. And as the preacher reflects on this, this truth really bothers him. And I guess it probably bothers us here this evening. And we're thinking, how can that be right? Well, whether he intentionally goes there immediately or not, the preacher, I think, touches on the rightness of this in verse 3, if you look there with me. 
feels like what he says here is primarily almost another kind of complaint, isn't it? That not only will death come to all, but that even while people are alive, their hearts are full of evil and madness. And that is crazy, isn't it? We only have one life to live, and it's so fleeting, so short, and yet we so often spend it in evil and madness. But while the rest of the verse deepens the preacher's frustrations, I think here he's also seeing something of the truth of why why it is true that everyone will die. See, Paul will later write in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And so if what the preacher is saying here is true in verse 3, that all of our hearts are full of evil, well, then there really isn't anyone who is completely righteous. But instead, every single person here on earth, every single one of us here this evening, we fall under the category sinner. And therefore, we also fall under the category condemned to death. Maybe you look at the picture that the preacher is painting here and you think, that's a bit too bleak, surely. But is it really? When you look at the world around you, can you not see the results of the reality of what the preacher is saying everywhere? Just like Clifford was praying about earlier. We see war, murder, theft, cheating, hypocrisy, anger, lying. We see it in the news bulletins. And we see it as soon as we step outside our door. And the reality is we see it inside our own houses too. And we see it inside our own hearts. If we're being honest with ourselves, it is there, isn't it? That natural inclination to just look out for ourselves, even if it means throwing someone else under the bus. I mean, just think about how naturally and quickly we lie when we're put in an uncomfortable situation. Or think about how quick we are to be angry when someone does something wrong to us, or we just, things don't work out as we'd hoped. That's deep within all of our hearts. And as we've just said, all of that, and so much more, puts every single one of us here tonight, every human alive today, under the same category, sinner. And that is what condemns each and every one of us to this death that the preacher laments. Okay, so that's feeling a bit bleak, perhaps. But maybe the truth is that death isn't all that bad. Well, we're all going there, but maybe it's okay. But if that's what we're tempted to think, the preacher wants to quickly knock that on the head. Because as he continues on in verses 4 to 6, he shows us a second deathly reality for us to know. And that is that death is crushing. See there in verse 4, he writes that he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Which maybe sounds hopeful at first, doesn't it? But I'm not sure it really is. I think it's just meant to be a way of introducing how crushing death actually is. The truth there, you see, according to the preacher, is that it would be better to be a looked-down-on, despised, miserable scavenger, which is what a dog would have been in the preacher's day, and be alive 
than be a royal, majestic, mighty lion who is now dead. Why is that true? Because of what he goes on to say in verse 5. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Death is crushing. It leaves the one who has died with no present consciousness under the sun. It leaves the one who has died with no future hope or joy to look forward to. Do you see there in that verse, no more reward? And on top of that, it leaves the one who has died with no past for either them or for anyone else to look back on. As the preacher writes, the memory of them is forgotten. The truth is that for each of us here this evening, after only a few generations, any memory, pretty much any memory of us will be completely wiped out. Here the preacher would have us see and know that death is crushing because it crushes our past, it crushes our present, and it crushes our future. See there in verse 6, when we die, the things that perhaps make us feel most alive, right? Our emotions, our passions, that is loving, hating, envying. Well, he says they're already past and gone. And all of this leads up to this bleakest of bleak statements at the end of that verse that sums up all that he's been saying. Forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The preacher would have us know this evening that death is coming to us all and he would have us know that we shouldn't take that death lightly because it is crushing in every way. Now if we're being honest, what the preacher has said up to this point shouldn't come as a huge surprise and it probably doesn't to us. We, we kind of feel it with him, don't we? But at the same time, isn't it crazy how when we look at the society around us today, it completely shelves these truths, doesn't it? Either they aren't true or we pretend, to, we pretend that we can do something about them. Either our coming crushing death is taboo, right? We can't talk about it in public, even if we feel it in private and the worry that that might bring us. Or our coming crushing death is something to be fought off. Maybe we can do something about it with the latest anti-aging cream, right? Or maybe we can invest in our children's lives because then after we're gone, well, we can live through them. Or maybe what I'll do is I'll make myself as healthy as possible. I'll spend all my waking hours researching and finding the best, latest, healthy foods. And that way, I can stay healthy and live. But the reality is actually what the preacher has been showing us. And which this, I think, uplifting bumper sticker, available all to buy this evening on eBay, reminds us of. Eat well, stay fit, die anyway. See, there's nothing we can do to avoid death. It is coming to us all, healthy and unhealthy. And as we're now going to see in the preacher's third deathly reality, as we jump now onto verses 11 and 12, the reality is that death is uncontrollable. It could come at any time for us. 
Look with me to verses 11 to 12. We're going to go back to 7, and 10, to 7 to 10 to finish. This is another of those sandwich, kind of chiastic constructions that the preacher often uses, where he makes his main point in the middle and surrounds it with his supporting points. So first of all then, just look with me to verse 11. And here, the preacher lists a whole load of things that should be certain, but are often not. He turns it on its head, doesn't he? The race, he says, well, it it might often be won by the swift, but sometimes it isn't. Maybe the fastest runner will trip and fall and come last in the race. The battle should be won by the strongest, but not always. Sometimes even the strongest fighter will get outsmarted. The intelligent, well, they surely should get rich, but sometimes they don't. And the truth that the preacher wants us to see here as he goes on into those other examples as well is that life is out of our control. As we saw back in chapter three, right? Our times are in God's hands and not our own. And listen, that sounds a lot of like what the the preacher is picking up at the end of verse 11 when he says, but time and chance happen to them all. Our times here on earth aren't in our control. They're in God's control. And that's what the preacher's pointing us to here. And so, now also onto the sucker punch of verse 12. So it is with death as well. Look with me at verse 12 and the imagery, the powerful imagery that the preacher uses. Just as a fish is one minute swimming along with its buddies and the next is suddenly caught in a net and ends up on our dinner table. Or just as a bird is one moment pecking at the grain and the next suddenly is in a snare, dead immediately. So it is with our lives. They can be taken from us at any moment. Even though it's hard to think about for me this evening, when I left my house and I kissed my children goodnight to come here, the truth is I can't say for absolutely certain that I will see them again here on earth. That's a tough truth, isn't it? But we need to hear this. We need to hear the words of the preacher this evening and not simply turn a blind eye to the reality of death. The reality is that each and every one of us here this evening are possibly only the next second, the next hour, the next day away from death. So if you're like me at this point, you're thinking, okay, that is pretty depressing stuff, isn't it? So what's the point here? What is the preacher trying to say? What should we do now that the preacher has shown us that death is coming, crushing, and uncontrollable? Well, thankfully, in the middle of his sandwich construction here in this chapter, he tells us. But it isn't what we would immediately think. See, it's a turn from a seeming situation of despair to suddenly a call to joy. Here in verses 7 to 10, the preacher gives us this call to enjoy God's gift of life while we still have it. Now, we've heard similar words from the preacher right the way through the book, haven't we, if you've been with us? But notice here that this is an even stronger call than you'll find anywhere else. 
Where before he has observed enjoyment and joy as good and fitting, or he's even commended it, here it is a straight-out, urgent appeal on command. See how he starts it off there in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. The preacher is saying, go, go do this. Go enjoy God's everyday good gifts that he is giving you. As he's just been saying to us and going to go on to say, death is coming. It will remove any more joys from us under the sun in the present or the future. So go and get on with enjoying what God is giving you right now, today, while you still have it. See, what's in view here are the everyday staples of the daily existence for the people of Israel. That is, the bread that they had to eat and the wine that they had to drink. And the preacher is calling them to stop just eating and drinking these unthinkingly, but to realize that they are actually precious gifts to be enjoyed. It is as if in the urgency of the appeal that he's making here, he's saying, remember what I've just shown you, that death is coming and it's uncontrollable. You don't know when your last meal will be. So don't just let it slip by without actually stopping to enjoy it. The truth is that God, the one who the preacher repeatedly in this book calls and names as the giver of all that we have, he gives us so much, doesn't he, every single day that we should receive with joy, that we should stop and be merry, be glad, be cheerful about Enjoy to the fullness that we are able to. That is God's goodness to us. Of course, for us, from this verse, perhaps the most obvious things is to stop and enjoy the next meal that we have, the next cup of tea that we have after this evening. Interestingly, though, Christians can sometimes feel like we shouldn't really go out of our way to enjoy the things of this world, should we? Maybe because that's going to distract our focus from God, right? All of our focus should be on God. But that just isn't the case in general. A freshly baked loaf, it's meant for us to be enjoyed. A cold glass of water on a hot day, isn't that incredible? And what a joy as it refreshes us. Why should we enjoy them? Because these things are good gifts from God. And actually, as we enjoy, as we actually take time to stop and enjoy these things that God has given us, that causes us to be thankful. It gives us a way that we think of God, and we rightly honor God as the one who has given them to us, as the, our good creator, the giver of everything, as someone who is so generous to us. On top of that, here's a fascinating thing. As we enjoy that refreshing cold glass of water on a hot day, or if, as the Bible often refers to elsewhere, we are enjoying the sweetness of something like honey, well, actually, those things can point us even more to the greater refreshment, the greater sweetness, the greater goodness that is in God. But if we don't stop to enjoy the things here on earth, they can't serve to point us to God in any way. But if we do stop to enjoy them, they say to us, wow, 
How much greater must our God be? He is so much greater than this refreshing glass of water. He refreshes my soul and gives me life and hope. He is sweeter. He is better to me than any other good thing here on earth. And so we get drawn to our God as we enjoy his good gifts to us. And you see, that's where the preacher goes at the end of verse 7. He is drawn back to God and his character. He says, doesn't he, eat bread with joy, drink wine with a merry heart, and then look at this incredible phrase. For God has already approved what you do. There's two things here, I think, for us to notice in this phrase. First, I think this phrase points us to the fact, like we were just saying, that God genuinely wants us to enjoy his good gifts. The preacher says he has already approved that we do that, that we enjoy the good things that he gives us. He wants you and me this evening and tomorrow and this week to enjoy what he gives us. That's why he's given them to us, these good, good things to us in the first place. But also deeper here, I think there is a second incredible truth in what the preacher is pointing to. How can we have this kind of joy, right? When this, this joy in the small things, when this big thing hangs over us, this big thing of death. Well, because even as we've seen the crushingness of death, the preacher is convinced that God is a gracious God who despite the fact that our hearts are full of evil, like we've seen, who does not treat us as we deserve, but instead graciously approves what we do. Perhaps we first of all see that grace in the fact that we here tonight are still alive, despite our sin. God is sustaining us and he is giving us good gifts to enjoy even today. But deeper down, I think there's another truth as well that the preacher would have us rest in this evening. That even though death is coming our way, if we live our lives with God front and center, rightly fearing him, trusting him, as the preacher has been pushing us to do right throughout this book, we can rest in the truth that our God will be gracious to us. Because that has always been and will always be his character. That is why the preacher does hold out hope. We'll see in a, in a few weeks' time in chapter 12, verse 7, he writes that while the grave presents a final boundary for us here on earth, he says, beyond death, the spirit returns to God who gave it. And do you see how that frees us up even more to enjoy God's everyday good gifts to us now? Because the reality is we wake up every single morning resting in and enjoying the truth that in God's prior unmerited favor upon us, he will be with us and he is giving us all that we need. We don't need to stand condemned as we enter our days. We stand joyfully praising God for his grace and mercy. As Eric Ortland, one of my uh, university or college professors, writes, so that changes each day. Instead of being a day of despair, it's a day of opportunity. Of opportunity to enjoy God's good gifts while we still have them here on earth and to give him praise for them. Of course, today we see, even more clearly than the preacher saw then, the unmerited favor and grace of our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And while I don't want us to, to go there for too long, because it's beyond the scope of what the preacher takes us to here, I do want to simply hold out that hope for us, each and every one of us this evening. Perhaps you are here this evening, and you're hearing that these truths, that death is coming, that it's crushing, that it's uncontrollable, and that makes you anxious, you fear that. Well, please hear this truth. As the preacher points to here, God is a gracious God. And in his grace and mercy, he gave us the greatest gift of his son, who came into the world. Why? So that you and I, if we put our trust in him, do not need to fear that death will crush us, because he has crushed death for us. He has overcome the grave. It no longer needs to be our final boundary that we fear. He is raised from the dead and he is victorious. And he is right now reigning at the right hand of God. And he is calling every single one of us here this evening to come to him. To find hope and joy beyond death. If you haven't done that, if you haven't come to Christ in your life, don't let this evening pass you by. Because as the preacher said, you don't know what tomorrow brings. So tonight, come to Christ. Come to him and know the soul rest that can be found only in him. Because the truth is, as the preacher writes here, God has already approved what we do if we are standing in Christ. Right, we still have uh, two more things that the preacher calls us to enjoy in light of our coming death in verses 8 to 10. So let's close with those. First of all, in verses 8 and 9, we're called to enjoy life and relationships. Verse 8, if you look there with me, that widens the scope of our joy to beyond just the everyday good gifts, to finding joy in all of life. Because in calling us to put on white garments, it's a bit strange perhaps for us, and put oil on our heads. The preacher is calling us here to set out on our lives, to set out every single day with an attitude of joy and happiness. Something both the white garments and the oil reflect on and come to represent elsewhere in the Bible. The call here is almost as if today we get ready like we're going to go out to a feast like we're going to go to some celebration or a festival, whatever it might be. The preacher is saying, prepare yourself because today will bring you joys. It will bring you good things. Whether it be an unexpected good conversation with your boss, a meal out with friends, a good walk, or a favorite movie, don't we so often let those things pass us by because we aren't ready to enjoy them. They're just another thing in the drudgery of life. That isn't how the preacher would have us approach them. They are joys that we can rejoice in. See, an attitude like this remembers that death is coming. It could come at any moment. And so we stop in the present and say, I will enjoy what God has put in front of me. Writing uh, similarly to this, here is what Mark Ashton Uh, someone that I got to know quite well in Cambridge, and the long-term vicar of the church where Heather and I met, he wrote this. He was given a, a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis of cancer at the age of 62, and he wrote this in a little book, um, On the Way to Heaven. I think this is really powerful. 
All the things of earth will soon be gone forever. And I have a sense of savoring some of them, especially because of that. I realize it may be the last time I watch a fireworks display or see a particular country view. The added poignancy makes me want to thank God for them and makes me sorry I have so often taken them for granted. Isn't that powerful? And the truth is that, as the preacher has said, we, we all have a similar diagnosis to Mark Ashton, to the one that he was given. It might not, for some of us, be as immediate as his cancer diagnosis, but we are all going to die one day, one way or another, sometime. And then see how the preacher continues on in verse 9, to include particularly those precious relationships that we have and our call to enjoy them too. After all, as Mark Ashton also wrote, I realize that it is relationships with people that matter most. For many of us, if you look down at verse 9 with me, it is a precise call to enjoy the husband or wife that God has given us. See there, we're actually meant to enjoy life with a wife or a husband. Not as the world puts it, right? Bear, bear with them. Go with it. It'll be okay. Keep going. Put up with them. No, enjoy it. Enjoy life with your wife or your husband. Why? Because as the preacher reminds us again in this verse, see that little word, verse 9, our life is vain. That's what he keeps coming back to, doesn't he? The enigma, the vanity of life. And in this context, it must be saying of how short our life is. Death could be any day. So don't let today or tomorrow pass you by. That day might well be the last day that you have with that person in your life. Of course, this call surely can be broadened out to every other relationship that we can enjoy here on earth too, right? Good friends. Lifelong friends from school, parents, children, whoever it might be, each of those relationships, as the preacher writes in verse 9, if they are in our lives, are within the portion in life that God has given us under the sun. So we're meant to enjoy life with those people. Just stop and think about your life right now. Who has God given you in your life for you to enjoy life with. Perhaps it is a husband or a wife. Perhaps it's a best friend. Perhaps it's just your colleagues that you see every single day. Whoever it is, relish each of those relationships while you still have them. They are a gift of God to you. And don't just settle for survival or blandness in those relationships. Seek to enjoy them. Maybe taking this call seriously this evening will mean for some of us genuinely going out of our way to stop and talk with those closest to us. To say to them, I do, I love you, and I care for you, and I thank God for you. And as part of that, let's start again in purposefully enjoying life together. Maybe you've got out of the way of that. Have those conversations God has given you people around you to enjoy life with. Take the time to find out how you can do that more. 
And then finally, in verse 10, one more call, one more command from the preacher, and that is to enjoy our work and to do it wholeheartedly. While there's no specific command to enjoy work in verse 10, I think it has to carry on through this context. And also, because we see in this verse a settledness, a contentment in the attitude commended towards work. Read with me verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is such a different attitude to work than most people have, isn't it? And it comes from knowing, as the preacher has reflected on time and time again in this book, that our work here on earth can't ever bring lasting gain to us. Because death is coming. And it will take every single last gain that we think we might have made here on earth away from us. And the reality is that that frees us up. It frees us up to do whatever it is that today's work holds for us. Not worrying about how we can find gain in it, but instead just doing it with all our might, as the preacher writes. Using every single gift and ability and talent that God has given us to simply do that work before us as well as possible. See, there's also the freedom found in the way that the preacher talks about work here do you see how he, the phrase that he uses? Whatever your hand finds to do. There isn't a chasing after here. It is what's in your hand. It's an acceptance that today God has given me this exact thing to do. It might not be what I always hoped or dreamed, but it is what is in front of me. And there is almost always something good in that thing. Sure, work is also toil. Right? He says that in verse 9. There's no doubt work can be crazily hard, difficult. We are in a broken, sinful world. But God is above it all, and he has given you today's and tomorrow's work for you to do with a, for a purpose. He hasn't given that to somebody else. Remember that. This is what has been given to you. And likewise, he hasn't asked you to do what he's called someone else to do, someone, something beyond the remit of your work. So let's hear the preacher's call here and seek to enjoy our work and please God in it, doing it with all our might. Jesus himself taught similarly this to this in his, to his disciples in John chapter 9, verse 4, when he said this, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Just as the preacher sees that we are all heading to the realm of the dead, Sheol, so Jesus speaks similarly there, doesn't he, of the night coming. That is the darkness of death. And in recognizing that, Jesus calls his disciples and us today to do what God has called us to do in the present. Sometimes it can be not very exciting. In fact, probably often it won't be. But know that there will be joys, joys of work well done, joys of colleagues impacted, joys of people helped or served, joys of God's kingdom grown. Let's stop and see those joys in our busy, busy work lives as well. 
And remember, as both the preacher in Ecclesiastes and the greatest preacher, the Lord Jesus Christ makes clear, our work like this will not last forever. Be reassured of that. Death is coming, and then we won't be able to work. So we need to make the most of the work that we have given here under the sun. Can you see, as we look at all of what the preacher has called us to do this evening, that he hasn't called us to a a life of carefree, reckless living, pursuing joy above everything else. Death is coming, so nothing matters. Throw it all away. Go. Live life as if it doesn't matter. No, the preacher here is actually saying to us the opposite. He's saying death is coming, and so everything you do matters. God is giving you every single second that you have this week, this month, this year, however many years God blesses you with here on earth, he has given that to you for a purpose. That is, first of all, to enjoy him, but likewise, to enjoy the good things that he has given us. And he has given us so many blessings. As the preacher says here, we can enjoy God's good gifts. Not that joys in those good gifts becomes the ultimate in our life. No, those joys instead point us back to our good, good God. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, much of what we've been thinking about this evening is sobering. Lord, that we are limited beings here on earth, that death is coming. Lord, that it crushes so much of what we would live our lives for. Lord, it can be something that scares us, that we do not know when our death will come. And yet, Lord, thank you for speaking truth and hope and help to us in your word this evening. Lord, thank you for the preacher's call here to instead of living life in despair, instead live a life of joy in the good things that you do give us, in having the freedom that we don't need to try and escape death. Lord, not living our lives fighting against it, but knowing that it is in your hand, that you hold every second of our lives in your hands, Lord, and you are a good, sovereign God. So we give our lives to you again this evening. And Lord, we want to thank you so much for your good gifts to us. Lord, help us as we think of these realities and as we hear the preacher's call, help us this evening even to enjoy our cup of tea, to enjoy the conversations that we'll have, to go and enjoy the family and friends that you have blessed us with. And whatever this week holds, Lord, we pray and ask that you would grant us enjoyment in the work that you will give us. And Lord, help us to have an attitude that is ready to see the joys that you give us. And Lord, help us to have an attitude that sees you as the ultimate. And as we enjoy those good things, Lord, help them to point us to the great goodness that you have shown us in Christ. We pray all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our final song as we lift our eyes from under the sun to the one who is above the sun, to the one who is seated on the, the higher throne.
The reality is, as the preacher has been going here, there are many hardships as well as joys in life. But if we are trusting in Christ, there's this incredible truth, isn't it, that we'll sing in just a minute. He will wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. The Lamb becomes our shepherd king. We will reign with him. That is the glorious hope and truth that we have as Christians here this evening. So let's stand and worship our God. Uh, in this final song. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.